Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my podcast series on Hanukkah. Why study Hanukkah? I think it's important for Christians and Jews to have a greater understanding of each other's holiday traditions. We share the Old Testament, and so, therefore, we have the same faith foundation. Growing up in Connecticut, many of my friends were Jewish, and therefore many of my friends celebrated Hanukkah, or a hybrid of Hanukkah Christmas. Since Hanukkah and Christmas are right around the corner, I thought it would be fun for us to dive into the origins of this beautiful holiday called Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the Jewish holiday, known also as the Festival of Lights. This year, Hanukkah starts on December 10th, and it ends on December 18th. So, first off, what's the right way to spell this holiday? Well, there's not an easy answer. It can be spelled three different ways. H-A-N-U- K-K-A-H, or H-A-N-N-U-K-A-H, or just to mix it up a bit, C-H-A-N-U-K-A-H. The reason is that in Hebrew, the word for Hanukkah is not easily transliterated into English. For one thing, the Hebrew alphabet has no vowels, and that's just one of the challenges. So actually, the CH spelling or the two H spellings are all widely accepted. Just don't pronounce it Chanukah. So what exactly is Hanukkah? Is Hanukkah named after a person or a thing or an event or a place? Did Jesus celebrate Hanukkah? Remember, Jesus was a Jew. I'm going to do a future podcast series illuminating the biblical importance of this fact that Jesus was, in fact, a Jew. Now, is Hanukkah a relatively new holiday tradition, or was it celebrated in the Old Testament? What does the tradition entail? Is it one day or over the course of multiple days? And if so, why? Are there special foods and songs and games that go along with it? And of course, many of my listeners are going to want to know, does it involve receiving gifts? Well, Hanukkah is the Jewish eight-day wintertime festival of lights, celebrated with a nightly menorah lighting, special prayers, and fried foods. So let's dig in. The Hebrew word Hanukkah means dedication, and it gets its name because it celebrates the rededication of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And we're going to learn in this podcast series, well, what happened to the temple that it needed to be rededicated? But for me, the first question is, did Jesus celebrate Hanukkah? He was Jewish, right? What do you think? And how could we possibly know? Well, the answer is yes. 
And we know this from the Bible. In the New Testament, John chapter 10, verses 22 through 23. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade, unquote. The winter holiday that the gospel writer John is referring to, that festival of dedication, that's Hanukkah. Now, the next logical question is, why is this the only time in the Bible that Hanukkah is mentioned? Why isn't it talked about in the Old Testament? Only mentioned this one time in the New Testament. It's a Jewish holiday after all, right? Any guesses? Well, as we'll learn in this podcast series, the events that lead up to the reason for this holiday occur during a 400-year period of time between the ending of the Old Testament writings, Malachi, for example, which is the last book of the Old Testament, was written about 430 B.C. Then there is an approximate 400-year span of time before the New Testament writings begin. Did you know this? That's actually why in some Bibles there's a literal blank page between your Old Testament and your New Testament to sort of visually represent this period of time. We call this time period the intertestamental. Now, some Bibles do contain a section that Protestants refer to as the Apocrypha. And these are a series of writings that were written from about 400 BC up to the time of Jesus. Catholic Bibles, for example, contain these books that include the story that leads us to an understanding of this celebration of lights, Hanukkah. The story is in two books, 1st and 2nd Maccabees. But again, I want you to understand, isn't it interesting this is not in the Hebrew Bible? Remember, the Hebrew Bible and our Old Testament are the exact same thing. So, the book of Maccabees is going to give us this story of the origins of Hanukkah. It's not included in the Hebrew Bible. But of course, there's still a value. It's just ironic that the book of Maccabees becomes part of the Christian canon that Protestants call the Apocrypha, but they're not part of the Hebrew Bible. We're going to learn that not only did Jesus celebrate Hanukkah, according to the Gospel of John, but he's observing it in the same temple that has been miraculously rededicated by a group called the Maccabees just a few generations earlier. So this is really where our story of Hanukkah begins, a few hundred years before the birth of Jesus. Hanukkah, as I've said, commemorates something called the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem. And it's during a time of something called the Maccabean Revolt against the Seleucid Empire, which is the Syrian Empire. It all takes place in the second century BC. During this period of time that I've told you is called the intertestamental period. 
that period between the end of the Old Testament writings, but before the beginning of our New Testament writings, which again is why it's not mentioned in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. So in order for us to understand Hanukkah, we have to have a bit of a history lesson. The Bible tells us that the Jews had become idolatrous and rebellious, which is going to lead to a split of Israel between the north and the south. And this is in our Old Testament. They're going to sadly fall into captivity, first with the northern empire being captured by the Assyrians around 722 BC. And then later, the southern part of Israel falls into captivity by the Babylonians about 587 BC. We also have in our Old Testament the story about the Jews starting to return to Israel around 538 BC. But during this time, they are, of course, constantly wary of invasion. They are able to rebuild their temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians, but they're no longer under self-rule. During this period of time, they're ruled by the Persian Empire. So now we're going to get to a part of the story that's no longer in our Bible, but it's ancient history that we should all be familiar with. It's 370 BC, and a king arises in Macedonia. He's known as Philip of Macedon. Now, Macedonia, that's this tiny little place in the northwest corner of Greece. And the Macedonians, yes, they, they're, they're part of Greece, but up to this point, they've really been looked down upon and actually despised by the Athenians and the Spartans because they are considered, you know, mountain people and uncultured. This guy, Philip of Macedon, nobody apparently told him that. So he becomes a great warrior and an organizer, and he dreams of creating a united Greek empire. Now, this is a tall order because this is something that has not been accomplished in 500 years. But impossibly, in seven years, Philip of Macedon is able to subdue all of the Greek city-states and unite them. So, during this period of time, the Persians from Iran they rule most of the known world, and they're still ruling over Israel. Remember, it's the Persians that actually captured Babylon, and it was one of their Persian kings that actually let some of the Israelites return to their land. So the Persians seem unbeatable. But Philip of Macedon, he succeeds in throwing the Persians out of Greece. And then he dreams of taking his empire across the known world and actually taking Persia away from the Persians. This is Iran. So Philip takes his war to near Istanbul, Turkey, and he defeats the Persian army. This is a super huge win, but unfortunately then he dies. So now it's time for his son to take over. His soon-to-be famous son, Anyone know who this is? Um, his name is Alexander, later humbly called Alexander the Great. 
So here's where the story gets interesting. And if you're like me, you're actually going to see the hand of God here. Alexander, he's tutored by none other than that famous philosopher, Aristotle. So Aristotle teaches Alexander all the ways of the Greeks, including, and this is interesting, a belief in one God, monotheism, which is definitely counter to the traditional Greek beliefs in Zeus and many of the other gods. So Aristotle, he has sort of an interesting concept of God. He, he does believe that a creator exists, and he actually referred to God as the first cause. He kind of believed that God pushed a button and kind of got it all started, and then he kind of sat back. He didn't do anything more. What happens on earth doesn't interest him. But nevertheless, Aristotle taught Alexander the Great that God existed. Now, this is going to be very important because it will help explain why Alexander the Great is able to eventually tolerate the Jewish religion because many of the Persian emperors were not. Now, one of Alexander's great military campaigns on his way to conquer the world brings him to Israel in about 329 B.C. There's a high priest in Israel, of course, and the high priest at this time, he's a man by the name of Simon the Just. And as throughout history, the Jews know they have two choices. Either greet this man of war, Alexander the Great, in peace, or fight back. And because of Alexander the Great's reputation, they were pretty sure they couldn't win. And so listen to this story of the famous meeting between Alexander the Great and the high priest, Simon the Just. This story is taken from a website called Jewish History, Alexander the Great. And I quote, Simon the Just chose the second course. The Jews were not about to defeat Alexander in battle. Therefore, the correct way to deal with the matter was to come to an accommodation with him. Simon the Just came forth with other members of the priesthood, as well as the sages of the Sanhedrin, to greet Alexander at the gates of Jerusalem as he strode in on his famous white horse, which he rode all over the world in his conquests. According to the historians of the time, it was an enormously tall horse, and Alexander was an enormously tall person. Plus, he always wore a plumed helmet. Combined, Alexander stood about 13 feet high on the horse. He was an awe-inspiring sight to behold. When Alexander saw Simon the Just, he dismounted and bowed to him. When he was questioned by his advisors, he told them that whenever he went into battle, he dreamed of an angel leading him to victory. The face of the Jewish high priest, he said, was the face of the angel he saw in his dreams. That was why he bowed down to him. Okay, 
Whoa, isn't that incredible? God was truly present here, right? All right, the story continues. Because of Aristotle, Alexander was positively disposed towards the Jews. Instead of destroying and subjugating them, he made an arrangement with them. As long as they would be his loyal vassals and pay their taxes, they could remain autonomous. That was an enormous concession because Alexander was rarely that accommodating to anyone. Out of gratitude to Alexander, the Jews did a few things. Okay, are you with me so far? This is an incredible story I never heard before. Listen as the story continues as to what the Jews agree to do in concession for Alexander the Great, allowing them to remain somewhat autonomous. First, they agreed to name every child born the next year Alexander. That is why the name Alexander, or Sender for short, became a common Jewish name, even to this day. At the same time, it also opened the door for Jews to give their children other Greek names, such as Antigonus, among other names of Greek origin one finds in the Talmud. Ironically, through showing Alexander their gratitude by naming their children after him, they unwittingly opened the door to the Greek language. And with the Greek language automatically came the Greek culture. The Jews also agreed to install a system of tax collection that would lead to terrible corruption. Indeed, it was so inherently corrupt that the Talmud held that anyone who was a tax collector was presumed to be a thief. Okay, fast forward to Matthew, the tax collector in our gospel story. This kind of explains a lot, doesn't it? I continue. This terribly pernicious system destroyed the morale of the Jewish community in the time of the Greeks long after Alexander was gone, unquote. Now, if you remember your ancient history, you might know that Alexander the Great was really just getting started when he suddenly dies at about the age of 33. This literally left the world in chaos. For one thing, what would happen to the Jews who had this special arrangement with Alexander the Great? What happens is that Alexander's dynasty ends up being split into two. The Northern Empire is ruled by the guy named Seleucus, and this becomes known as the Seleucid dynasty. Seleucus's headquarters is in Damascus, Syria. So that's north of Israel. The Southern Empire is ruled by Ptolemy. You know Ptolemy, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. And his headquarters is in Alexandria, Egypt. And of course that was renamed in honor of Alexander the Great. So the two generals, they actually get along and they agree on virtually everything except the line that divides the Northern Empire and the Southern Empire. Yeah, you guessed it. Israel's right in the middle of their disagreement. So 
the Jews are caught in this tremendous power struggle. So for the next 130 years, it's sort of this balancing act of the Jewish people between these two giant dynasties of Ptolemy and Seleucus. So history tells us that Ptolemy, well, he attempts to win the Jewish people by persuasion and culture. And this is in dramatic contrast to the North who attempt to win by force. So this is the historical backdrop to the story of Hanukkah. Eventually, the northern kingdom of Seleucus, well, they kind of get tired of the game and they send their army in. The Jews are going to resist, and then we're going to set the stage for the dramatic events of Hanukkah. So now we have Israel, and they're under control of Seleucus, and he dies, and so now they're under the control of his son, this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus starts to force the Jews to accept Greek culture. How does he do this? Well, he makes reading the Torah, which is the Jewish scriptures, illegal. He does not allow them to celebrate Shabbat, which is their Sabbath, or any of their feasts. He outlaws circumcision and basically makes all Jewish observances against the law. So Jewish worship is forbidden. The scrolls of the law are confiscated and burned. Circumcision and all of their dietary laws are now prohibited under penalty of death. And as if this weren't bad enough, history books say that horribly Mothers were killed for circumcising their sons, and Jews were put to death for refusing to eat pork and other unclean animals under the Mosaic Law. So all of these atrocities were horrible. But then something even worse happens, and this is in 164 BC, and this is the event called the Defilement of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Now we've learned throughout our podcast just how important this temple is in Jerusalem to the Jewish people. It's the holy place of God. God resides there with his people. So what happens is the army of Antiochus erects a statue of Zeus in the holy of holies. Remember, that's the most sacred place that the high priest is only allowed to enter once a year during the Day of Atonement. And then a pig is sacrificed on the holy altar. Now, if you listen to my Sacrifice and Offering podcast, you know what a horrible desecration this was. Everything, the altar, the utensils, the menorah are all defiled. But here's what's interesting. Because all of these years of Greek indoctrination, many of the Jews did nothing because they've kind of become totally assimilated into this pagan culture around them. Well, that's not the end of the story. Antiochus's men go now from town to town and village to village to 
forced the inhabitants to worship these pagan gods. Now, one day, the story says, they arrive in this village called Maudaina. And here's an old priest. His name is Metayahu. And there they build an altar and they demand that this old Metayahu offer sacrifices to the Greek gods. And the story says that Metayahu bravely replies, I, my sons and my brothers will remain loyal to the covenant which our God made with our fathers, unquote. So the story says that after that, Metayahu leaves his village and he flees with his sons to the hills of Judea and all the loyal and courageous Jews join him there. And so an uprising begins. And after Metayahu's death, his son Judah became leader. And Judah, this is so interesting, was called Maccabee, M-A-C-C-A-B-E-E. And the word Maccabee is kind of a code word, and it's composed of the initial letters of the four Hebrew words, Mi, Kamocha, Ba'ilim, Hashem, which translated means, Who is like you, O Yahweh, or O God? Who is like you, O God? And therefore, it's then called the Maccabean Revolt. I want you to listen to this Hebrew song that says these Hebrew words. I got this from HebrewSongs.com. So again, what they're saying is, who is like you, O Yahweh? They took the first letter of each of those Hebrew words and made the word Maccabee. Wow, what a story. I can't wait to hear what happens next. So let's review what we've learned so far. First, we learned Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. We've explained that Hanukkah is not mentioned in the Old Testament because the events that lead up to this celebration, they occur after the writings of the Old Testament during the time that we call the intertestamental period. But it is mentioned this one time in the New Testament in the Gospel of John. In this story, we have the Israelites who are under siege once again, and this time by an evil Syrian dynasty led by a man by the name of Antiochus. And Antiochus is evil, and he's made it a crime to practice Judaism, to read the scriptures or celebrate any of their holidays. We then have been introduced to a young man named Judah, and he becomes a leader of a revolt against this oppression. And they've adopted a very cool name for their cause, Maccabee, which is a word composed of the initial letters of the Hebrew phrase, who is like you, O Yahweh, or who is like you, O God? Who is like God? You know, there's a number of Old Testament Bible verses that ask this rhetorical question. Psalm 113, verse 5. 
Who is like the Lord, O God, the one who sits enthroned on high? Isaiah 44, verse 7. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Psalm 71, verse 19. Your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens. You have done great things. Who is like you, God? Exodus 15, verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Truly, who is like you, O God? Isn't it wonderful to look at ancient history and to see God's hand? Who knew that we'd be talking about Alexander the Great and God in the same podcast? I think there's a tendency for us to detach the Bible stories from reality and from world history. But unlike the detached God that Aristotle believed in, we serve an awesome and loving God who wants to be a part of everything that happens in our lives. And he has been a part of everything that has happened ever since the beginning of time. Have a blessed week.